0: Does Trump get tripped up in Iowa and or New Hampshire? I think you're gonna have to see some problem for Trump in one of those early contests. Do things get so bad for Biden that he really seriously considers stepping aside? That's, again, that's not something you would predict. Does the third party mix actually end up being for president next year? Does no labels actually run someone? Does the ballot access work out for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and and Cornel West, who's the Green Party nominee, who's the libertarian? There's a lot of complicated stuff in terms of the ballot itself, and it could be a pretty long ballot in a lot of places in an environment where a lot of voters are not really happy with their major party choices.
1: Not only are parties not very happy with their major party choices, but they're also incredibly dissatisfied with the way democracy is working and with real or perceived uh, lack of response from our political institutions to a range of issues that are having a real impact on people's lives. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia, where we are both looking back and looking forward. I'm Kara ong
0: And I'm Kyle Kondik.
1: Kyle, we have a couple of things that we wanted to get to today. But first up is your new analysis that's out now on the crystal ball where you compare where you compare Trump's approval rating in 2019 to Biden's approval in 2023. These are basically about the same points in each person's presidency. Um, and, And you find that Trump's average approval rating was better than Biden's. But two kind of striking findings that I hope you can help dig into was that Biden's lower approval was not driven by higher levels of antipathy from Republicans, and that Trump was stronger with Republicans than Biden currently is than Democrats, which, you know, really seems to suggest that Biden's real troubles are within his own coalition. Um, so, so tell us, you know, how you went about this analysis and and what you found.
0: Yeah, I just looked at some of the prominent national pollsters. I picked three that had polls out, you know, roughly November, early December of both 2019 and, and 2023. Here, Quinnipiac, YouGov, and Gallup. Uh, and you know, as part of the as part of what I was looking for is they're providing a you know, cross-tab information about you know pretty basic you know demographic trait, which is whether people say they identify as a Democrat, Republican, or or as an independent. Um, and so for both Biden and Trump, you know, they, they, they both get hardly any s- approval support from the other side. You know, in the, these three polls, on average, it was just 6 percent approval for Trump from Democrats and 6 percent approval for Biden from Republicans. So that's identical in these in these in these polls. And, you know, overall approval uh, in these three polls. And this is pretty similar to the averages both times, both for Trump and Biden. Uh, Trump was at 41% approval, Biden was at 38. So, you know, Biden's, Biden's worse by, by, by a few points. It's not dramatically different, but, um, but, but Biden's numbers are worse, but then you look at, uh, independence, you know, Trump was 36%, Biden was only 29. So there's a seven point difference there. So, so Biden's a little bit weaker And then particularly among partisans, Trump was at 90% with Republicans, Biden is only at 78% with Democrats. I think it's reasonable to think that that in an uh, in an electoral scenario that that those voters would come home you I mean, you see this to to some extent in in these polls and the sort of horse race between Biden and Trump um but you know it seems like Biden won independence by some degree um different sources disagree with this on in, you know it for for 2020 uh and you know we also saw during the 2022 midterm that um you know democrats uh did pretty well amongst people who even said they somewhat disapproved of 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 Biden. You know, the strong Biden disapprovers went overwhelmingly Republican. But um, you know, you figure also those independents are people who might you know vote third party or not show up. Uh, so there's some there's some softness there that again is 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 softer than um the, you know that than Trump himself in, in in 2019.
1: Yeah. So we actually had a question that came into us via X formerly Twitter about biden's approval being lower than um being lower among independents than than trump i mean is it largely just because you know we we may be seeing more republican leaners among independents
0: you know it's it's possible uh you know the, the the mix of people who respond to these polls i think varies over time i mean that's one argument you sometimes hear from people who maybe think that biden's troubles are overstated which is that there's some sort of like response bias going on with uh um w- w- with people responding to, to polls right now and maybe it's just you know kind of a, lo- a lot of democratic voters are just harder to reach and that's that's possible i mean i guess you know it it uh um one famous example of this was the polls right after the first presidential debate in 2012 when you know obama was sort of widely regarded as having a bad performance against mitt romney and um, R- Romney's number suddenly got a lot better um, after that debate. And it seems like it was kind of a more of a polling mirage than actual movement, that that race was pretty steady. Yeah. You've had a number of Democrats who've gone from uh, you know voting Democratic for president to voting for Trump. You've got some Republicans who've moved over to voting Democratic for president. You know, maybe some of those people are in the, think of themselves as being in the in the in the independent column now. Um, you know, so that's, that, that's also something to, uh, to, to, to keep in mind. But uh, you know, bottom line is, is that Trump's numbers are soft with independence, and Biden certainly are, too.
1: And one other question that we had come in from listeners was regarding, you know, how does your analysis of approval sort of relate to um, some of the overall polling that we've seen recently of Trump doing better than Biden for 2024? Yeah, I mean, look, Biden's
0: approval rating has been going down um, and Trump's in, uh, uh, performance on the head to head against Biden um, has generally been improving to the point where Trump has been leading in most national polls, not by a lot, but you, know, you got to remember Trump lost the popular vote in both 2016 and 2020. So him for, to be leading polls, I think is, um, is kind of telling again, even with all of these, um, with all these caveats, but it's pretty clear that particularly over the last, I don't know, month or two, that, you know, Biden's numbers were not great, but they've gotten worse in this, you know, in, 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 in this, you know, this recent period. And then just a question as to why that is and whether it's recoverable or not. Uh, you know, again, obviously the election is still far away, but, um, there was even some, you know, reporting just, um, in the Washington post, uh, within, you know, very recently about how, you know, the Biden team is of course, taking note of these bad public, you know, polling numbers and, uh, they want to try to do something about it. So, you know, it's easy. It's easy for like people on social media to say, oh, these polls are meaningless. Biden's doing fine, et cetera. Like, you know, obviously the, the, the Biden team is concerned about it. So that tells you something, too.
1: So the other thing that you looked at last week in the crystal ball was New York's redistricting process. And last week, the state's highest support reopened the congressional redistricting process what do you think it will mean for control of the House of Representatives in 2024?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean it's it, you know it's it's a potentially very important decision because you know you had a Democratic gerrymander in that state uh, in 2022 that was overturned by the courts and uh, it ended up being a creation of basically a, what what I would think of as a kind of a fairly balanced map and Republicans performed quite well on that map. Uh, you know the 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 delegation was 19 eight Democratic heading into the 2022 elections. Uh, it ended up being 15 eleven Democratic, so significant gain for um, for for Republicans, and particularly compared to the map Democrats drew. You know they were hoping to get to like 22 to four or something like that. Um, you know, and, and New York did lose a seat in the congressional reapportionment. That's why the, those totals are a little bit different over time. But um, you know, th- there's a very kind of convoluted process in New York. There's a commission that um, we'll get a couple of cracks at at uh, uh, at, at doing maps, and the, the legislature, which has a Democratic supermajority, could could reject those maps and then try to draw their own map. Um, you know, they might not be able or, or feel confident going as far on a gerrymander as they did back in in twenty two. But um, you know, this is th- there are several seats in the balance here potentially, and you know, the House majority is uh, is, is is very small right now. So this is any uh, court action on uh, or changes to maps, you know, be it a new. Republican gerrymandering North Carolina, creation of a new democratic seat in Alabama that might happen in Louisiana as well. You know, all of these pieces matter when you're, you know, when, when you've got majorities, you know, two straight houses, uh, um, in 20 and 22 that were, you know, 222 seat majorities, um, you know, 222 to 213. Um, you know, so, so again, like this is something that that's, we're going to be monitoring. And, uh, you know, again, it, how it goes could determine the house potentially.
1: Kyle, we have had an incredible year at The Center for Politics, a lot of analyses, a lot of amazing contributions from guest scholars. Um and this is probably our last podcast of the year. I'm I'm not going to rule out. It's 99% <laughs> chance this is our last podcast of 2023, but I'm not going to fully rule out that, you know, we don't get some amazing guests between now and the end of the year. I wondered if we might take some time to reflect on our biggest takeaways from 2023. Um, and I truly hope you're going to say something about redistricting more uh,
0: broadly. <laughs> well, you know, in terms of redistricting, I mean, you know, it it, it was a pretty active year um, for, you know, changes in maps. Now, we've only seen Actual change maps in, in, in a couple of places, North Carolina and Alabama. We also saw that in Georgia, although that map is not likely to change the you know, partisan makeup there. But of course, there'll be lawyers about that, too. Um, but, you know, again, it, it, I think that just the, the small majorities kind of raise the stakes of all these redistricting decisions. And, you know, it's pretty common for there to be some map that changes, you know, from one election to the next, you know, from um, from from one even numbered, uh, you know, federal election year to another uh but uh, uh but there's it seems like there's just been a lot of action uh in 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 that regard and uh you know i think overall I, I think that when you're if you're trying to look at 2023 and think about what it may say about the future i mean first of all i would advise maybe not doing that because um these uh you know particularly off year elections are not predictive and a lot can change from uh you know from one november to the next but i do think that you you do have some conflicting signs out there because broadly speaking i think democrats did you know, decently well in the in the, you know scattered elections that we had in twenty twenty three not everywhere, but but in a lot of places, uh, which was sort of like twenty twenty two in that you know you had these you know they had these elections going on in the midst of a you know pretty unpopular democratic presidency, and yet that didn't lead to like some sort of wave for the Republicans. But then you also have this polling situation for the president, which I think is um should be concerning to him and to to Democrats, uh, and I think he is. Um, which paints a pretty bleak picture for for Biden in 2024, um, you know, you've also had uh, this, you know, this primary season going on that has been, um, frankly, uh, not particularly active. You know, you've got Republican presidential debates where the clear front runner, former President Trump, is not participating. Um, you know, despite Biden's weaknesses, he does not have a credible challenger within his own party. Um, so I would describe it kind of as a little bit sleepy, and yet, um, you know, I think that we're we're probably headed for you know a a, a a very competitive election in 2024, and maybe some you know maybe some twists and turns, you um, know, in, in terms of who actually the nominees end up being. Even though the nominees look pretty obvious as we're talking now, you know, right before the holidays.
1: Well, that sort of leads to my final question for you, and and I have some thoughts as well. But what are you watching for in 2024? Does, does Trump get
0: tripped up in Iowa and or New Hampshire? Um, You know, I think, you know, there's been some polling that shown Nikki Haley, you know, moving up in New Hampshire a little bit. Um, I don't think it's crazy to suggest the possibility of her maybe winning New Hampshire. You know, these things kind of can break late, particularly if uh, voters in New Hampshire, you know, want to pump the brakes on whatever, you know, if Iowa gives, gives Trump a big margin. Uh, You know, we saw this in 2000 when uh, George W. Bush was like a very obvious front runner the same way that. Um, that that Trump is now and uh, New Hampshire, you know, broke for broke for John McCain, but that didn't really have any broader implications for the race. Uh, you know, Bush recovered and and still ended up easily winning. But um, but I think you're going to have to see some problem for Trump in one of those early contests because if not, there's not going to be much rationale for any of these other candidates to uh, uh, to to continue. Um, you know, do things get so bad for Biden that he really seriously considers stepping aside? That's you know, again, that's not something you would predict. He doesn't seem to, that doesn't seem to be where his head is, but I can see that if the numbers are as bad in the spring as they are now, uh, there may be growing pressure. But again, pressure, that doesn't necessarily matter because it's like, sometimes people will ask you, oh, well, will the DNC replace Biden or this or that? It's like, no, I mean, if Biden is winning the primaries and winning, you know, winning the the, the, the majority of delegates that he needs, um, it's ultimately up to him to, you know, to to, to make the decision. Um, but that's something to, 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 you know, keep in mind, you know, who, what the, what does the third party mix actually end up being for president, uh, next year, you know, does no labels actually run someone, um, does, you know, does the ballot access work out for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And, and, you know, Cornell West, you know, who's the green party nominee, who's the libertarian. Um, so the, you know, that there's a lot of complicated stuff in terms of the the ballot itself. And. Um, it, it could be a, a pretty long ballot in a lot of places in an environment where um, a lot of voters are not really happy with their major party choices.
1: So not only are parties not very happy with their major party choices, but they're also incredibly dissatisfied with the way democracy is working and with perceived real or perceived uh, lack of response from our political institutions to a range of issues that are having a real impact on people's lives. Um, and and I say that because as this year is coming to a close, um, I wanted to just sort of look at and and analyze what, what Americans have been saying um, uh, in response to a broad range of surveys on the state of democracy in the United States. Um, and you know i I think we should be incredibly concerned um, for what people are thinking and and how that may impact whether whether or not they even turn out to vote next year. Um, and um, you know, I think one of the things looking at ac- across surveys is just how much divergence there is on where people are on issues and what issues they think are a priority. Um, and, and there are you know, pretty significant gaps by party, but th- there's also gaps by different socioeconomic and uh, uh, racial demographics as well. So I think that's also something we, we should be you know, kind of thinking about the broader context in which our elections are occurring last year with uh, democratic backsliding in the United States and around the world. Um, you know, I think on the on the hopeful side. There, you know, a majority of people still prefer democracy. um, And, you know, there is sort of about one out of five, um, you know, only only one out of five, although it's troubling, only one out of five would prefer some other system to democracy. You know, it just it, it really strikes me that we need to focus on thinking about and doing something about how we get our political institutions to work well again and to be responsive to to the needs of the public.
0: One thing I always look at is, and this I think kind of dovetails what you're talking about, is just this immense amount of sort of pessimism and negativity about all sorts of big institutions. Um, I mean, government, of course, plays a role in it, but you know, it's, it's you know, it's it's not just the presidency; it's Congress, which you know, Congress's numbers are almost always really, really bad. I think the one time that that they weren't was right after 9 11, when I think there was just sort of this unifying kind of feeling in the country, but. Other than that, it was it's been pretty negative. But you see, the Supreme Court wrapped in that. Obviously, I think the the, the media is part of that. It, you know, big business is part of that. Um, and uh, you know, you, again, you've got pessimism about the major party candidates. Uh, and I'm you know I'm curious as to what that what that means for just people people turning out because um, yeah. we have been in a fairly high turnout time, um, particularly since Donald Trump was elected president. Um, you know, whatever whatever you think about him, he kind of. Hypercharged participation in, in despite you know his all of the things he said about uh, you know casting doubts uh, unreasonably on the you know the, the quality of election administration and that sort of thing but you know do you, do you just see people maybe tuning out because they don't like the choices and they're they're very pessimistic, which is you know not what you want um in a you know in, in, in a country like ours I and mean, you want people to participate. Um, but I just I just kind of wonder about that, you know, for twenty twenty four. That's another really big question. It's just, you know, who shows up and and uh yeah. um and how that compares to uh you know to to some more recent recent elections.
1: Exactly. One other thing that we are really paying attention to here at the Center for Politics is the role that generative artificial intelligence will be playing in the twenty twenty four elections. And, you know, I do want to emphasize that it is just a tool that can be used for, you know, can have both positive uh, purposes, but it can also have negative consequences, um, intended or unintended. Um, you know, again, it's a tool that is in the hands of human beings to use. Um, but we learned this weekend, Politico, Politico ran a report, um, that, uh, the first, uh, congressional candidate is now employing genitive artificial intelligence produced by a company called Civics, C I V O X um uh, to deploy robocalls. Um and so this is just sort of another development that we're paying attention to. It's it's not just deep fakes or um changing or manipulating information either through imagery, voice, videos, etc., um, but being able to spread information um, at at a much greater scale. And, you know, I think in the case of of some candidates, especially down ballot, This kind of technology can be really helpful, especially for, um, you know, candidates that don't have a lot of money or state and local officials that don't get paid well or at all um, and don't have staffs, you know, to really do the work. I mean, I think generative AI can have a a lot of many positive benefits for them. Um, At the same time, the same tool, um, you know, can be used to spread mis, dis and malinformation at a scale we've we've never seen before. and, and in a closely contested election, you know, where we have much greater ability to micro target constituencies, um, you know, that that could have implications for for the elections as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, like like robo calls are not like a new thing. Um, and, you know, like you'll sometimes hear about, uh, you know, a, like a, a Barack Obama or a Donald Trump, like recording a message for someone and uh, and and, you know, and then for a campaign and then it being, you know, robo called out to voters or whatever. But what you know i think when people pick up the phone they realize that you know the president is not on the other end of the line but you know with the with the ai stuff and and like it, it seems like it's going to be harder and harder and this is true in politics but harder in all sorts of things just for people to really distinguish between like whether they're talking to a real person or not and uh uh and, and that's just you know that's just something that's going to be uh a growing obviously a growing aspect of of uh life in general but i um, you know it seems like uh Campaigns are going to be using these tools just like anyone else does.
1: Yeah, you know we we've had deep fakes for a long time as well, right? Like we've we've had the ability to alter images for for a long time. the The challenge with generative AI is that it's it is not as easy to um, tell that something has been altered. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and and there's just no there's no regulations. There there are no safeguards in place at this moment to really protect voters or and the broader american public yeah i
0: mean i think about this too and i and this has been something i've just thought about for years with social media like you know it just seems like it's it's just easier to spread things that aren't that aren't true and this, that has nothing to do with ai just like um yeah just you know uh, uh bogus news and and reports and whatnot and uh uh you know you have to be like it's it, it's hard to be a very sophisticated news consumer today harder than it used to be and it's it's uh, frankly harder to be a sophisticated consumer of other things too um particularly if it's hard to just tell like what is um again what is what is artificial and what is what is real so it's it's i i it, to me it kind of again it sort of dovetails with like these other trends in american life that i think just make it harder on people to know like what's what's really accurate or not
1: one of the potential positive outcomes of this could be that more people start paying attention to some of the traditional media sources and journalists once again, because of this challenge. Um, but I'm, I'm not really hopeful on that front because that assumes that people have time, um, and motivation to go search out, um, multiple sources to compare and contrast and a broad swath of the American public just doesn't.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a heavy, it's a heavy lift. Um, and uh, and again, you also think about like the people who are most persuasive, who are most persuadable uh, for elections, are generally people who pay the least amount of attention to politics. Because the people who really pay a lot of attention are, are hard partisans on you know on you know on the on the Dem side or the Republican side. Um, and so you know th- th- there's there's a a lot of people who maybe are conflicted, but um, they don't have the, the the time or the interest or the energy. Um, or maybe even the desire, given how toxic a lot of this stuff can be, um, to you know, to, to be able to sort of fact-check the things that they see. Um, so, you know, it's just it's just it's just a hard time, um, I think, to be a consumer of this kind of information because it's it's easy to get um, it's easy to get tripped up.
1: Well, Kyle, I hope you have a wonderful break, and I look forward to many good conversations and analyses in the new year.
0: Happy holidays, everyone.
1: Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong-Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website, at Group. You can also engage with us on social media, at Center Number 4 Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time,